Well, good morning, and let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our series on Sunday mornings that we've entitled The Hall of Faith. And we've made our way as far as verse 30, and so let's pick it up by taking a look at the verse together. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews was given to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people who had recently become Christians, to encourage them to continue on in their newfound faith in Christ. They were subjected to uh, persecution, not only from their Jewish brethren in Israel, which caused a large uh, expulsion from Israel into the areas of Asia Minor, which then brought upon a second wave of persecution upon these early found Christians from the Roman government for their uh, unwillingness to recognize Caesar Nero as God, which left these new Christians pretty much vagabonds, nomads within the wilderness areas of Asia Minor with really no identity, history, and apparently no future. And they began to question the viability of continuing on in their Christian faith. They felt that it would be easier to go back to Judaism, to renounce their Christian faith, and once again regain their Jewish identity, regain their national homeland, uh, regain their uh, wealth possibly that they had lost due to the fact that they were persecuted for their faith in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews writes this urgent letter to them to encourage them to continue on in Christ for there's nothing to go back to. And as a result, he is trying to give them by chapter 11 of Hebrews different examples of individuals who were confronted by what appeared to be insurmountable obstacles and uh, adversaries and yet still continued on in their faith in God and pushed forward Uh, in their faith with God. And so these examples are given to you and I today for the same purpose, to to allow our faith to grow by learning from their examples, but also identifying what they needed to individually overcome to allow that faith to work within their life, to allow them to be obedient to what God was leading them to do and so forth, and allowing them there to overcome the insurmountable obstacles that they faced at their time. We as Christians need to understand that When we talk about obstacles, we are often talking about spiritual obstacles that try to keep us from the blessings that God has from us. The New Testament makes it clear that we are in a war as Christians, and that war is raging, and that we have a great adversary, and his full-time mission is to seek whom he may destroy. And we have to understand that Paul, Peter, John, James, and the writers of the New Testament saw themselves in this spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle, and desired victory for all of us as the children of Israel found victory in their pursuits, in the edicts of God as they came into the land in which God gave them Uh, from the commission of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. That is the land of Canaan, which we now know today to be Israel. In this spiritual battle that we face, 
faith is um, so important. It is this faith that will carry us on through this spiritual battle in which we rage. And when we come to the 30th verse, we are being described and reminded of the account of the children of Israel and their victory over the stronghold, the city of Jericho, which lie within the entranceway into the land of Canaan in which God was giving them for the land of promise in which he has made it to them. But to secure the land of promise, they first needed to get past the city of Jericho. And the faith exercised by the Jewish people at this time is known amongst the Jewish people as conquering faith. This faith allowed them to conquer the city of Jericho. And so when the issue of Jericho or the account of Jericho is re, uh, being reminded of the, uh, to the Israelites here in the New Testament, they think of the conquering faith associated with that event. The conquering faith of the Israelites had four components. And I believe that looking through history, the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind the Jewish readers who are currently finding themselves in the position in which they do under great waves of persecution, isolated from all of their family and homelands, uh, scattered amongst the uh, uh, wilderness areas of Asia Minor there in Gentile regions, pretty much hated by all, embraced by none. The writer of Hebrews wants to remind them of the conquering faith that their ancestors, their forefathers displayed at that moment that Jericho was seized and the children of Israel were then able to enter into the land in which God had promised them was theirs. Within the conquering faith of Israel, we find four components that I believe are consistent in our faith today, we need this, these four components in our conquering faith over the spiritual world in which we war against. And the first of those four components has to be the components of a daring faith. It was a daring faith. They trusted God to do great things for his glory and for his name. And they were willing to step out and take risks and take chances if God led them to do so. They weren't concerned about the pros and cons that they could visually see from the circumstances and the experience. They were going to trust God to see what God was going to do in the wake of his instruction. It was a daring faith, number one. Number two, it was an obedient faith. It was a faith that listened distinctly and specifically to the directions that God gave his people and applied them accordingly. And we'll see that in just a moment. The third aspect of the conquering faith of the children of Israel has to be the patience that this faith required to exercise properly. A patience within this faith to allow God to do all that God was going to do according to his timeline. And fourth, we find that within this faith was an anticipation of God working. 
knowing that God was going to do something great. And if I were to uh, be daring and if I were to be uh, obedient and if I were to be patient within this faith, I can anticipate that God is going to do something spectacular in the wake of it all. These four components, I think, are necessary if we are going to carry ourselves in conquering faith against the spiritual adversaries that we face. Now, again, if we as Christians say we believe in God, then we must also believe in Satan. And the legions of demons that fell with him there at the beginning, that work uh, against the programs of God, work against the children of Israel of God, uh, uh, work against the uh, children who are now in Christ uh, and Christians going forward. And as a result, we need to have that same conquering faith to be able to stand against the, uh, the, the darts that the enemy throws at us, as Paul states in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 6. We need to stand in the whole armor of God, but again, that armor then is motivated by the prayer and the faith of the individual moving forward in the power of his God or her God. So we need to be daring. We need certainly to be obedient. We need to be patient and we need to anticipate God doing great things. The children of Israel, when they came to the promised land, were required first and foremost to walk across the Jordan River. Not the obstacle that the Red Sea once was, but the Jordan River still was like that of the Mississippi. It was wide, it was deep at places, and it was almost impossible to cross, especially with the number of people the children of Israel had within their caravan. So God met them at the edge of the Jordan River and this time instructed them in a unique way to cross the Jordan River. And he says, prepare the ark and the ark will lead you and 12 priests will carry the ark and so forth. And everywhere that the priest steps within the river, the river shall part. This time, instead of the Red Sea parting before they were to make their way across the dry land there of the Red Sea, this time it was going to be required of them to take step by step by steps, progressions of faith. And each time the priest's foot landed in the water, the water spread to allow the children of Israel to move through and through this a river to the land in which God has promised. And I believe within that alone, there's a lesson for all of us to learn. That in a walk of faith with God, it is also, it's always step by step with God. He rarely gives you the big picture. He rarely emails you the entire plan. He often just reveals moments at moments and moments of it at a time and allows you to take each step. And then when you take that step, he meets you again to give you the next step in the process. And we're going to see that progression. This time, the children of Israel, 40 years after the parting of the Red Sea, needed to be obedient. If they were going to see the river spread, they were going to have to take the step of faith to see that accomplished. God did it for him the first time. The next time, now you walk with me step by step, and I will part the river as you go. But when they came and they crossed the Jordan River, their first obstacle was the city of Jericho. 
And the city of Jericho, again, was one of the most fortified cities simply because of where it was located and the protection that it gave to the land of Canaan. This was it. This was the moment that the children of Israel were truly going to have to watch their God work because they personally were incapable of overcoming the city within their own personal ability and capability. So God instructs them in a very unique way. He says, now go ahead and march around the city one time each day, then on the seventh day, seven times, and then at the end of the seventh time on the seventh day, I want you to shout, and I'm going to bring down these fortified walls that are keeping you from conquering the city, and you're going to know that I am your God. And the children of Israel did just as God requested of them, and victory was given to them. So often confronted with a situation like that, it would have been easy for Joshua to look at the obstacle in front of him and to say, okay, now this is the way we have to overcome it. We need to create catapults. And we need to storm the city with huge ladders, like one of the scenes from the uh, movie uh, Lord of the Rings, you know. And we, we have to overcome this, you know, uh, this incredibly fortified city in such a way, and God will give us victory in and through our endeavors. Yet God was saying, no, I'm going to do it in such a supernatural way that you can take no credit for anything that happens, and then you will therefore know that the land in which I am giving you, I am truly giving you if you are obedient to me. And so their daring faith needed to be obedient to what God had instructed them to do. Then they needed to be patient because it wasn't going to be after the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth day. It was going to be on the seventh. But at the seventh day, at the seventh march around the city, when they shouted, there was an anticipation that God was going to do something spectacular. And that's the conquering faith in which we will look at this morning together, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage his readers uh, within to allow them to continue on in their walks with Jesus Christ. That same conquering faith is needed by all of us today if we are going to stand against the, uh, the uh, wiles of the devil who comes after us in a spiritual way. Today, Christianity has succumbed itself to the naturalism of our society and our culture where we've basically said that there's nothing really in the world except all that is naturally therefore created within it. And as a Christian, we see a supernatural world working within the natural world that is equally a, a part of reality as the physical world in which we occupy. They want to, of course, negate that idea that there is any kind of spiritual or supernatural intervention from any other place within the natural world in which we live. And so they have to explain creation in, a, in what they would think is a natural process of evolution, where we believe a creator created all things. Where we see the supernatural miracles from the time of Jesus all the way through the history of the Old Testament, they want to try to give some natural explanation to it, where we say, no, that's the supernatural hand of God. And so... 
part of the naturalization of the Christian faith in our country is the relaxed idea that we have concerning Satan, where many Christians I have now discovered simply believe that Satan is simply a, a personified understanding of the concept of evil. No. Oh, he's evil, all right. But the Bible clearly teaches us where he came from, a fallen angel who raised himself up in the sight of God and desired to be worshipped like God and pride filled his heart. And as a result, he was cast down by God and took a third of the angels with him who now constitute the demons in which we see within the Bible. And this supernatural world, this uh, fallen supernatural world is working against you and I who are Christians. Have you ever wondered why Christianity always seems to be the focus of persecution? Very interesting. I've never seen a, uh, a barrage of tweets coming against the Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, against others. It's always Christians at the focal point of persecution. It's always Christians who seem to have to weather the storms of the spiritual activity uh, in the course of church history that are found in you know, physical and, and um, natural persecution. Why is that? Because that supernatural fallen world knows that what we have is the truth. It knows that we are forgiven in the person of Jesus Christ and we have discovered the redemption that is not offered to them. We have found that we can stand before God the Father in our fallen condition, not due to our own personal righteousness, but because we've been clothed and robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are therefore children, sons and daughters of the king, prince and princesses of the kingdom of God. And we are now uh, part of something much larger than the natural world in which we live in. And Paul, as he saw himself, not in great wealth, but in poverty, he saw himself still as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, carrying on the gospel of Jesus Christ into all the world. And he saw the gospel of Jesus Christ being that of power to release individuals from the captivity of darkness, of death, and to release them from the bondages that this world has placed upon them. And then allowing us the faith in our God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the confidence of His Word to overcome and to conquer and to live victorious lives apart from our fallen fleshly nature. This is extraordinary and this is the reason why the spiritual warfare is a reality to we who are Christians. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we can have a conquering faith in God if we will allow ourselves to truly understand, believe in, obey, be patient, and anticipate God working in great ways. Let us begin by looking in Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We've been taking you back to the original accounts of each of these uh, inductees into the hall of faith. Again, this is the children of Israel in their totality. But let us just take a moment to consider the obstacle that they were facing as they entered in to the promised land. 
Now Jericho, verse 1, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None of them went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands. And, I'm sorry, with its king and its mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the Priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Pretty cool, huh? Personally, I'd like to have been there, all right? All right, this is something I'd like to see. I'd be like, go God, yeah. Now with those instructions, they had the choice to obey or to disobey. But at this particular point, the children of Israel felt a confidence within their God that allowed them to move into an aspect of allowing that faith to cause a daring action within their life hey, let's go and let's see what God will do today based on the promise in which he has just made to us. And this is an incredible uh, aspect of our lives. And it's found throughout all of the uh, New Testament. It's this daring. It's this willingness to say, God, you can do anything because you are God. You know, the only time God is limited is when we limit him. Wow, I guess you really agreed with that. I'm convinced of that. I am convinced that when we limit God, putting Him in a box, and that box is, uh, is the boundaries of our own personal abilities and capabilities, it is then that we then begin to waver in our faith and we begin to uh, become very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, volatile at that moment and we succumb to temptation and we get distracted by the things of this world and we become anxious and worried and fearful. But the daring aspect of this is that the children of Israel wanted to see the wall fall. The wall of Jericho is one of the great architectural wonders of the world. In the 1950s, a woman named Kathleen Kenyon did a wonderful book on the walls of Jericho that is currently, uh, it was, she was um, sponsored by the British Museum to go and do the excavations that she did there in that land concerning the walls of Jericho. And she made a mock-up of the wall that I agree with, and I believe that uh, guys like Answers in Genesis agree with, it was a very good mock-up. It looked something like this. The wall of Jericho was actually two different walls. A first wall, which was about 20-some feet high. You can see the little guys at the bottom. This is them marching. Only three of them showed up that day. And as they got out there, they were confronted by this wall, this first wall, which was about 12 to 16 feet high. The second one, though the model doesn't look it, was more like 26 feet high. And then there was this grassy area in between the two walls. And this is what they had to overcome to siege the city of Jerusalem. 
uh, I'm sorry, it's the city of Jericho, pardon me. And as a result, this is what they stood against. Now the wall has been proven and the wall's uh, uh, foundations have been shown to have crumbled, just as the Bible says it has. But this is just a mock-up that you can find within the British Museum of what this wall possibly looked like when it was in its um, full construction. However, though, as they came to this particular point of the land, they knew that nothing that they physically could do could overcome it. They completely had to trust God for their victory, but they were willing to trust God for their victory. Now, when we talk about this daring faith, we saw it in Joshua and Caleb's life 40 years earlier. They were two of the 12 spies that were sent in to look at the land on behalf of Moses, and they were the two that came out with the bundle of grapes, if you remember the story from the Bible, and they were fully confident that God was going to give the land into their hands at that time. As they came out, Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 10, and Joshua and Caleb were among those who had spied out the land, the word tells us. They tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly a good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. And this land flows with milk and honey. They said to the people, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. They are cake and we're going to eat it up. That's what he's saying here. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Joshua and Caleb said, then all the congregation said to to stone them with stones. They didn't want to hear it. They were afraid. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Joshua and Caleb were right 40 years earlier. But the people came to the fear that the other 10 brought about and the daringness of their faith waned at that moment. And therefore they did not enter into the land in which God was giving them because of the unbelief that they carried within their heart. This isn't the only time we see this daring faith in the Old Testament. We see it with David and Goliath. I love what David said. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lions and from the paw of the bears when he was merely a shepherd will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And David said to the Philistine, he said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This is a little guy before Goliath. And he's not boasting in and of himself. He's boasting in his God. This is what God can do. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all of the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or, or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Daring faith? Amen. Yeah. Nothing's too hard for God. 
And if God has brought us here and God has led us here and God wants me to confront this particular issue, he's going to see it through. Instead of cowering in fear and worry and anxiety, let's stand up and say, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but let's see what the Lord's going to do today. He's a big God, right? He can do big things. Hey, he brought me here. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust him in this moment. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to confront it, not in myself, not in pride, not in, uh, you know, my own personal ability, but I'm going to stand firm in humility and in the grace and the glory of my God. And that's what David did to exemplify the faith in which he had. But their daringness wasn't enough. They still had to be obedient, number two, didn't they? God specifically instructed them, you're to march around six times, and then on the seventh day, seven times, and then shout after the trumpet blast occurs. Now, walking around the city, you can imagine that the enemy was on top of the wall looking down upon them, just saying, I don't get it, do you? I don't get it either. I don't know what they're doing, you know? And they're being ridiculed. Yeah, you just keep marching. You see, see my wall? It's a big wall, ain't it? You ain't ever going to get me. That's the accents they had too. It's in the Bible. It's just, I don't know where I get these things from. Sometimes it even scares me, you know. Veggie tales, yes. Biblically accurate veggie tales. And they were walking day by day, day by day. And you can, you know, they're normal human being, but they had this daringness. And I'm sure walking around it sound better than trying to storm the city walls with ladders and with catapults and so forth. But faithfully, they did it day by day by day by day in obedience to what God has said. Now, this isn't the only time God has asked someone to do something seven times and then he would work. When the prophet Elijah came and was working with King Nahum, King Nahum came to him because he was uh, struck with leprosy. And the leprosy was such a problem that Nahum was freaking out about it, literally in the text. But when he came to Elijah, it says in 2 Kings 5, 8 through 14, The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and he had sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Nahum came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, now go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Nahum was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought you would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord God and wave his, his hand over the place and cure the leper. However, though, could he not wash me and then have me be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage, it says. But the servant came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you do it? And he actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and it was clean. 
So King Nahum had to go down to the Jordan River. Now, this was a completely humiliating act, and he had to dunk himself seven times within the river. Can you imagine seeing your king bouncing up and down in a river seven times? Well, what's happening? Oh, he's being healed by God. Oh, really? But he didn't stop at number six, did he? And after the seventh time, he was healed, as God said he would be. Not only we must be daring, but we must be daring in obedience to what God has said. And we must engage the battle in which we find ourselves in the manner in which God states we should. And our weapons are not carnal. They are not fleshly. We're not wrestling against people, flesh and blood, but of principalities and power. So the weapons that we use are the weapons of prayer, the weapons of God's word, the weapons of love, and so forth. We must do what God has asked us to do the way God has asked us to do it. It's one thing to be daring, but then to uh, allow that daring to be um, encapsulated in the obedience to the word of God is what makes it truly powerful. And so shall we be the same way today. In Acts chapter 8, another interesting account. Philip, one of the deacons selected in Acts chapter 6, finds himself in Samaria and there's a revival breaking out, a great work of God. All of a sudden, God speaks to him and says, listen, I want you to go to this desert out in the middle of nowhere. And Philip, according to the word of God, immediately goes. And it wasn't until Philip got there, making the journey, that God then met him there and gave him the next step. See that Ethiopian that is walking over there. Attach yourself to him and help him understand what he is reading. And the Ethiopian was just coming from Jerusalem. He was reading Isaiah. He was reading the portion concerning Christ. And he had questions concerning who that portion of scripture was referring to. But notice with me that Philip wasn't immediately instructed by God saying, go out to the desert and this is, what you'll be, this is what you'll find. He was instructed by God. He then went to the desert, step one. And once he got there, God met him there to give him step two. This is the obedience that we need. And we may not have all the picture and we may not have the full plan that God has for us within our hands, but the step in which he has given us is the step that we must be obedient to at that moment. Does that make sense? Because then he'll meet us where we are at to give us the next step of the process. I can tell you that pastoring this church for the last 21 years, God has often done that in our lives given us a glimpse of what he was possibly going to do. And he just said, now be obedient to what I've asked of you. And then after that, I'll show you the next step. And sure enough, the next step would come. And then the next step and the next step. This is where the third element comes in. And that is the patience. Waiting on God is one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life. When people pray, they either hear yes, no, and usually can contend with those answers accordingly. But it's the third one that gives them the most trouble. That is wait. But God, the timing is perfect. No, no, wait. But don't you see the opportunity is at hand? No, 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 gotta wait. No, you don't understand it. My biological clock is ticking. Nope, wait. 
Wait. Oh, Lord, you don't understand. This is it. You're going to miss this golden opportunity. Nope, wait. It's the hardest thing to hear. But it's the greatest lesson that we can learn. In the psalm, David wrote about this, and he says it was, an, it was a sign of maturity in his life when he says, I finally have gotten to the place where I can wait on the Lord. I can wait on God. They needed to wait on God. We need to wait on God. As we enter into the battle and as we confront the stronghold or whatever it may be, and we do it with daring and we do it in obedience to God's word, then we must be patient to allow God to work it out as he sees fit. Because as he does so, he will work it out to give him the most glory possible. Trust me, on that seventh day when those walls came down, do you think the children of Israel were high-fiving each other saying, look what we did! Really? They were probably in awe of what God just did. This is incredible of what God has just done. We need to be patient. Now, the best visual illustration that I can give you concerning patience is an example of when people became impatient. Now, let me ask you a question. In your life, have you ever become impatient and made a rash decision that has come back to just truly bite you in the backside? No, you've never done that, right? The moment of instant gratification, you just gotta have it, you know. I can finance it for 43 years, you know. Interest only, you know, whatever it may be, and it's just so tempting, and you make this rash decision because you weren't patient and you allowed instant gratification and your immediate wants to overcome. I think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were given a promise by God that they were going to have a child, and through that child, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But God gave them that promise about 23 years before he actually fulfilled it. And in those 23 years, they became, well, impatient, let's just be honest. And Sarah one day came up with the brilliant idea and said, listen, my uh, handmaiden Hagar here can be used as a, you know, a, um, as a, uh, a concubine for you and you can have a child through her. She can be a surrogate mother uh, and God can fulfill his plan this way through Hagar and then everything will be okay and God will be happy, will be happy and so on and so forth. She got a little impatient on the plan of God. She didn't, she didn't know that he wanted her to be 90 and, and uh, Abraham to be 100 to start the family that they were going to start. And after the child was born, Sarah then began to hate Hagar and feel envious towards her and contempt towards her for being able to do something that she wasn't able to do for her husband, Abraham. But as a result, through Ishmael came 12 princes, prince those 12 princes are the Islamic states around Israel today. Think about that for a moment. The Bible tells us very clearly that the lands in which these 12 princes would be heads of would be constant problems to the nation of Israel. Is that true? Yep, still to this day. Very interesting how impatience brought about this consequence. 
That's why the, the Islamic people look to Abraham as we do, but they believe that the promise was fulfilled through Ishmael, through Hagar. We believe it was fulfilled through Isaac in the miraculous manner in which Isaac was born. Impatience can bring about serious consequences that we can avoid altogether if we would simply wait on God. But once waiting on God and once doing what God has asked us to do and once having the daring to allow God to do what he wants to do, let us then walk with the anticipation of God doing something great. You know, Saturday nights I have the hardest time sleeping because I never know what God's going to do Sunday at church. I I always look with great anticipation for what God is going to do next on a Sunday morning. I believe God can do great things. And why not believe him and trust him to do just that? Now, he may not do what I want him to do, but he always does what I need. He He doesn't promise me my wants, but he certainly promises me my needs. And sometimes when you allow God to work in such a way, you see him work in such extraordinary ways that you can only just say, Oh God, what an incredible thing for you to do. A couple years back, we were working here in the church on an afternoon during the week, and we had some construction guys here, and they were working on a hallway of the church and so forth. And while they had the material, I, had, I said, hey, can you also touch up this area that we originally didn't have quoted, and I'll give you a few extra bucks if you do so. And they said, sure, yeah, not a problem. We've got everything rolled out. We'll be glad to paint that up for you. Not a problem at all. And they said, you know, well, how about just 60 bucks? I said, fine, I'll, I'll bring 60 bucks in. And, and you can knock this out too. It needs to be redone. And you got everything here. Great, that's great. So the next day when they came, I brought the 60 bucks. I was here with someone else and we were working in the sanctuary as they were working out there. And the guy came back to me and he, he after I gave him the 60 bucks, he came back, he goes, you know, it, was, it took me five minutes. Here, take your $60 back, you know? And I said, well, that's very generous of you. Thank you. Are you sure? Because I believe, you know, you did a little extra and it wasn't part of the original quote and I don't expect you to do it for free. He said, ah, it took me five minutes and it gives me a good star with God. I said, well, you're going to need more than a good star with God, but, but I, I appreciate your, your generosity. So he gave me the $60 back and I said, okay, Lord, well, you know, I don't know what you wanted me to do with the 60 bucks. I'll put it in my pocket and just see what you have to do with it and we'll see what you want to do. Half hour later, a gentleman came in to the church. He was homeless. He had a family and he was just looking for help. And I talked to him and he said, could you help? And I said, absolutely. And I gave him the 60 bucks. See, God knew that guy was coming. And he already provided for him. I was just the man who, you know, passed the money to him. But little did he know that not only did we give him the 60 bucks, but we also took him to the grocery store and we got him as much groceries as he possibly wanted. And then we drove him home so he could feed his family that night. And we said, all of this is a gift of God to you because he loves you. God cared about that homeless guy even before I had even known about it. And that $60 was given so I could give it to him. And I said, Lord, you know, you are incredible. 
every detail doesn't go unnoticed to you. So every day now, I anticipate God to do great things. Look with me in Joshua chapter 6, if you will, again. Notice the heart of Joshua here in verse 15. So track down with me to verse 15. And notice this. And on the seventh day, check this out, the seventh day, they rose early. I bet they did. They couldn't sleep, man. They wanted to get out there. At the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on the day that they marched around the city seven times. And, the, and at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, notice what he says here, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Past tense, future tense, what? It was already theirs. God gave it to them. It was a reality already in the mind of God. So past that, the city has been given on to you. He looked with anticipation for God to do something great. And God said to them, now shout. And as they did, the walls came down. And victory was theirs. And they conquered the city and allowed the entrance into the land in which God was giving them in a supernatural way. I want to bring your attention to one other guy because he's one of my favorite characters of the Bible. His name's Caleb. He's the one of the other spies that came out and said, this is bread, this is cake. God's going to give us this land if we would only trust him 40 years earlier. Now, Joshua became the successor to, of course, Moses. But what about Caleb, the other spy, who came out and also was in agreement with Joshua that the Lord was going to do something great that day if they would just let him do it? Caleb wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And by the time he came into the land with Joshua, he was 80 years old. And in chapter 14 of Joshua, it is so interesting to me. And this is why I love Caleb. He says, I'm finally in this land. I'm 80 years old. I'm going to Eric paraphrase it for you. I'm ready to go. I've got my strength. I've got my health. I've got everything. Now, remember that God had said a portion of the land was going to be for me. Yes. And Joshua said, absolutely. Yes. And Caleb said to Joshua, fine, I want this portion of land. And he chose the hardest portion to conquer. He chose the most difficult section of the land to conquer. And he did so because he was fully confident that God was with him. It didn't matter if he was 40 or 80. God is still God, right? God doesn't change. And Caleb still had that confidence in God to give him that land. And I would strongly encourage you to read that because it's so encouraging. The attitude of Caleb is amazing. I just see him as one of those, you know, old, uh, you know, Marine military guys with the tattoos, you know, originally it looked like, you know, Tweety Bird. Now it looks like Big Bird, you know, and, um, but he's ready to go, man. He is ready to go. I'm 80. I'm finally hearing what God has promised. Give me the toughest section and let's see what God's going to do. There's no retirement in Christianity. 
our retirement plan is the day we close our eyes here and open them in our, with our Heavenly Father. Caleb is a great testimony to that. If you come back with me to Hebrews chapter 11, let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. And in Hebrews 11.6 we are reminded that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and is the rewarder of those who seek him. Let us go forward to victory in our conquering faith in God. And that conquering faith is a daring faith, allowing and trusting God to do great things each and every day. It's an obedient faith. It says, if the word says it, therefore I will do it. And trust God for the outcome. Number three, it's a patient faith. It'll, it'll encourage us as we wait on God and trust God to fulfill it as God is going to fulfill it. And lastly, it's an anticipating faith. It expects God to work according to the promises that he has made towards us because what God has promised us, he is able to perform. Amen? All right.